Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Future of Media Explained, Press Gazette's weekly podcast. This week, we're going to be finding all about newsroom leadership. And to tell us more about newsroom leadership, I have with me someone who's learned a lot about newsroom leadership firsthand from working with me. It's Press Gazette's UK editor, Charlotte Tobit. Hi, Charlotte. Hello, Dom. Well, you've learned firsthand how not to do it from watching me. But you've spoken to a real expert this week to find out more. It is Jim Edwards. Tell us a bit more about who Jim Edwards is and why he's someone we should listen to if we want to learn about sort of leadership or management in a newsroom. Jim is the former editor-in-chief of Insider's News Division, and he was also previously founding editor-in-chief of Business Insider UK. So those are two pretty serious leadership positions within Insider, of course. Just for more about him, other places he's worked, he's been managing editor of Adweek, and he's been at Brill's Content and places like that but he left Insider earlier this year he just decided he needed a change a break as many people do but he also was writing a book about management which is called Say Thank You for Everything The Secrets of Being a Great Manager so we thought he'd be a good person to have on the podcast to tell us some of the things that he had learned firsthand and decided to write about in his book. Say thank you for everything so I think traditionally journalists aren't brilliant managers are they or and the traditional model of kind of newsroom management i guess in the uk you have the image of someone like kelvin mckenzie who's a kind of probably quite funny but also very scary and a bit of a monster but i'd say probably yeah that's what worked in the 80s 90s may not be the way forward now and i suspect there's lots of editors who struggle a little bit with management because we become good reporters or good specialists and then get promoted and have to suddenly manage people for the first time and are never taught how to deal with it. Is that sort of something that sort of Jim looks at? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that newsrooms have this stereotype of being a very toxic culture. And while that may not be as true as it once was, I think what you're saying is exactly right, that maybe there's still a lot of managers who have never really been properly trained in being a manager, maybe were really great reporters or correspondents and then got an editor role and a team leadership role. And that's not necessarily their forte, but that's just the traditional way that people get promoted. So actually that ties in quite nicely with something Jim is going to talk about in our interview, which is that what perhaps works better is to have a separate track for what he described as your rock stars. Basically, you need to make sure that people feel rewarded and like they are progressing, even if they never go into a management position. So you need a a different way of making sure that they feel satisfied at work and basically... The only way to progress in your career shouldn't only be to be a manager if that because that doesn't suit everyone. <laughs> okay. I'm keen to find out more, Charlotte. I know I know I'm a good manager, right? <laughs> I'm contractually obligated to say yes, but no, actually yes. <laughs> co- co- correct. <laughs> and we'll talk about afterwards why you were more instantly enthusiastic when you answered that question, Charlotte. But we'll bring, <laughs> we'll take that we'll take that offline. But now I'd love to hear more about what Jim had to say. What, what, what did you ask him? How did you kick off the interview? To start with, he was just summarising his career, which obviously I've just given you a bit of. But then he talked about what Business Insider was like when he first joined in 2011 and what their purpose was and how, therefore, his management role fit into that. At the time of Business Insider, I was like employee number 50, something like that. There were very, very few people read it, and it was not taken seriously, really. It was a very adventurous, wacky, very funny and energetic and weird publication at the time. It had a small staff. Everyone knew each other by their first names, and we all sat in the same room, basically. And it was a lot of fun because at Insider, the belief was that business news was basically really boring. Like the Wall Street Journal is not a barrel of laughs, shall we say. Nobody, I have a lot of respect for the journalists at the Financial Times, but nobody ever puts down a copy of the Financial Times and says, wow, that was really entertaining. And we believed the business news was actually very entertaining and very dramatic and very sexy and very, very rock and roll. And it's power with money attached, right? Some of the personalities and egos in the business world are huge and outsized and it's a soap opera and these people are rock stars and we should approach them like that, basically. And the business journalism should be as entertaining and wild as it should be informative. There's no reason for business news to be boring, basically. And I believe this as well. I was like, this is great. I've been waiting for this. And I joined as an advertising writer. The company grew, just became more and more successful. We just added more and more people. And uh, 10 years later, I was the editor-in-chief for news, supervising like a newsroom, a global newsroom of about nearly 100 people. I was on the executive committee, which supervised the entire company. I think they nearly have a thousand employees now globally. We sold the company for 442 million. It was a huge success. For many years, people laughed at Business Insider. They thought it was stupid. They didn't think it would last. It was very much an underdog publication. And now, in its own way, it's quite dominant. They just won their first Pulitzer. And that will not be the last Pulitzer they win. I know what uh, Nick Carlson and the management at Insider is doing over there. And they have a they have a plan. They're only going to get bigger and better at what they do. I left earlier this year after 10 years because I was, I was tired. <laughs> I was, I'd worked very hard for 10 years. I was a little bit burned out. 
and I wanted to do uh, something new with my career. You've written your book, Say Thank You for Everything, which touches on all, lots of issues about how to be a good manager and leader, and not just in newsrooms, but obviously that's what we're particularly interested in here. I just thought from what you were just saying, quite a good jumping off point is obviously you so you were there for 10 years and it's changed in size massively in that time. It must have been quite a steep learning curve, both for you and everyone who's been yeah. a manager there. So how did you deal with that speed of change and leading the newsroom at, well, and all staff into sort of that massive period of growth. It was really difficult. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. And on many days, I was not very good at it and made a large number of mistakes along the way. And as the book, I hope, makes clear, I'm actually not the very best manager who ever walked the earth. But I've had to learn these lessons myself. The biggest thing is if you're supervising like a small team of people, up to anything up to six people, um, I think five for me personally is the cutoff. That's actually relatively easy because you can sit around the same table and have a sort of day-long conversation and everyone's on the same page. Once you get above six, though, coordination and communication becomes a real thing, uh, a really important issue. And when you're dealing with a much larger group, so the news group at Insider was nearly 100 people, there are 600 journalists in the newsroom in total, there are 900 to 1,000 people in the company as a whole, communicating with all of those people and getting them all on the same page, that is actually a really massive task. And it is not simple, it's not trivial, and it's not easy. And going from being a person who's supervised a handful of people to someone who's supervised hundreds of people that actually is really difficult. And the weird thing is, no one tells you how to do it. You just have to do it. There are other books you can read. And sometimes companies will give you management training. And in my experience, management training is almost always terrible. Like it's really boring, for, for first of all. Um, there's a lot of role-playing exercises, things like that. It's a bit cringy. It's a bit David Brent in the office. It's a bit like that. There is no good way to learn it. So one of the reasons I wrote this book is that this is what I wish someone had handed to me back in 2011. Basically. So is there something that companies can be doing better to help people become managers? That's a really good question. I think the main problem is that managing people is a completely different skill from whatever work you're doing. So I, I'm a journalist. My job was to report. And when I joined Insider, I called people on the phone and I emailed people for answers and I went to lunch with my sources and I visited courtrooms to pull documents and stuff like that, all, all of that. When you're supervising people, you don't do any of that, right? Other people are doing the work. All you're doing is organizing the work and communicating with them. And it's a completely different skill. It's a completely different job. And the problem is that you think you're doing the same job. And in fact, you're not. You have a new job. It's completely different. And it, it is very difficult to prepare for that. Um, it's also weirdly difficult psychologically. In the book, I call it the existential crisis of management because you're not, you are not doing the work. You're supervising the people who are doing the work. They're the ones who are really doing the work. You're not doing it. Weirdly, supervising those people is extremely necessary and of itself very hard work. <laughs> but you're in this weird alienated space in which if things go well, um, you won't get much credit for it because you don't have a byline. All you did was manage them, right? The editors never get the byline. The reporters get the byline. If things go badly, it definitely will be your fault and you'll be held <laughs> to account. So there's a lot of, and you're completely dependent on everyone else to do the good work because you're not writing the story yourself. You have no guaranteed control over its quality. You're just hoping that the people you who work for you are going to do a good job. So there's, yeah, there's a level of dependency there too, which is, again, 
no one ever talks about until you get that promotion, basically. Yeah, it's been something I've heard talked about a lot in terms of, yeah, as you say, you can be an amazing reporter and get rewarded for that with a promotion and then suddenly you're not doing that anymore and you're doing a completely different job. And Uh, that's like the normal hierarchy for many industries, not just ours, but that's just how it is. It's... (laughs) I think of it, imagine, imagine, imagine you own Liverpool FC and Mohamed Salah, the legendary striker, is scoring the most goals of anyone on your team. If you manage Liverpool the way companies are normally managed, what you would do is you would say, really great performance, Mo Salah. How about we promote you to manage the whole club and take you off the pitch? and hope that you can somehow delegate your talents to everybody else and will leverage you that way. This, of course, would be ridiculous, right? You, why would you take your best performer off the pitch? You actually want to keep the best performer on the field scoring the goals. But in, in every other business, what people tend to do is promote the, best, the person who's best at it and hope that somehow their skills will be leveraged. But it's a completely different job. And we've probably all worked in newsrooms and at companies where someone was really great at the job and then they got promoted and they were terrible at it. A recommendation I make, and it was something that we did do at Insider, is that you actually have a separate track. You can move people up into management if they turn out to be good at managing people. But if you want to keep the good reporters or the good workers doing the actual work, have a separate track for them. Have a uh, a separate ladder for rock stars, basically, where they can earn a, uh, a series of ever more important sounding titles. But really, they're just still doing the work and they're not supervising people. They're, they get to update their LinkedIn and they, there's a career development path on there. And that turns out to be really important to people. I underestimated that, actually. People really do value getting a new, fancier job title, even if it doesn't come with the money. Workers and employees put a great deal of value on that, which is interesting to me because my advice to everyone in the world of work is that you should really only care about two things. The first is, is your work creatively satisfying? Like, do you just like it? If it's creatively satisfying, that's very good, and you should probably stay where you are. The second thing is, do you feel you're being paid appropriately for the work you're doing? Are you earning good money? If you've got those two things in your job, you're probably happy. And don't worry about the job title or whether you're being promoted or not. Promotions are sometimes a poison chalice. Promotions are sometimes, people say yes to them because it's more money and a fancier title, but sometimes it's actually quite bad. Yeah. So my advice is, are you creatively satisfied? Do you think you're paid well? If those two factors are in your favor, don't worry that you've got the wrong job title. I guess the the thing about getting progressively nicer, more important sounding job titles is just that people like to be told they're doing well and that's a way of doing it. And I guess that ties yeah. in exactly to the book titles, like saying thank you all the time and to your workers say, yeah, I wonder if you could talk about that aspect of it, just making sure that people, that aspect of management, is like making sure that people know that they are, that people are happy with what they're doing and the difference that yeah. can make. One of the reasons I enjoyed writing the book is that I've worked at so many horrible toxic newsrooms full of bullies and fascists and idiots and people who yell, sort of people who manage through intimidation and fear and stuff like that. And the media is notoriously filled with these places. Another thing I realized was very common in my career is I would have these jobs and you'd do the work and sometimes you'd do the work really well and just no one would ever say thank you. And there was a very specific moment at Insider in one of the, I think it was the first year I was there, I'd asked a woman, a writer called Laura Stampler, Hi, Laura. To stay late to finish a project, she had finished the project and it was like Friday night and we were still stuck in the office at like seven or eight o'clock on a Friday night. The office was empty. Everyone else was in Margarita land at this point. 
And yeah, she finally finishes, she gets up, she leaves, and just as she's about to walk out the door, I said, oh, Laura, one more thing. And she spun around and looked daggers at me because she <laughs> thought she'd just about made her escape. <laughs> and I said, thank you very much for all the work you did this week. I really appreciate it. And it was, I know you worked really hard, and it was, I noticed it, so thanks. And she had a massive smile on her face and beamed, and she was like, fantastic, you're welcome. And she went out. And then there was this other guy just sitting across from me, staring at me. Actually, it was, it was Ellis Hamburger, who's now, I think, head of marketing for Snapchat or something. Ellis was staring at me, and I was like, what's your problem, Ellis? <laughs> he goes, I've never seen anyone here say thank you before. <laughs> and I was taken aback by this. I was like, surely people have said thank you. If you've worked in a few newsrooms, you'll know that it might not be common. And I found, after that, I realized that no matter who I worked with, that if I said thank you to them fairly regularly and just made it very clear that they'd done a good job, I thought their work was good, it was really noticeable, you know, that I appreciated the effort they put in, you can alleviate a huge amount of job stress and job tension around that. People do want to hear that. They do want to be praised. There's a lot of, in the news business, there's a lot of stress because of deadlines, because of the, it's very competitive, you might get beat any second. There's a lot of negative stress in the news business, but... If you're working on a team and your boss appears to genuinely appreciate the effort you're putting in, that takes away a huge level of workplace anxiety, I found. And it's the, that's the reason the book is called Say Thank You for Everything. It's the single, if you don't read the book and you, and you want one good tip about being a manager, just say thank you to your people every day. That will get you further than any other trick. Excellent to have one big tip. I was going to ask for some more. So I was going to say if one common mistake is not saying thank you. Well, bearing in mind that, so at the start of the book, you cite some horrible bosses and anecdotes about horrible bosses, but obviously that's not the most common examples of bad management. To share uh, maybe a couple more common mistakes, but things to do instead, what would you say? Just to boil down your entire book. Yeah. Okay, so a really common situation is you go to your people and you say, hey, can you do this thing, please? You know, can you write this extra story? Can you investigate this thing? And the default position of most people in a workplace is to say yes to their boss, right? But you, the boss, are in this position of constantly asking for more things, more tasks, more projects, whatever it is. And everyone feels they have to say yes because that's what they're being paid to do, right? It's actually very unusual for bosses to go around and take work away from people. And often employees do not feel, what's the word? They don't feel comfortable saying to their boss, I'm overwhelmed. If you give me this work, I can't do it all. Something's got to give. A mistake as a manager is to never prioritize your people's stuff. And by prioritizing, first of all, I, I always encouraged everyone I worked with, if they felt they had too much on or they couldn't do it, tell me what you're, tell me what you're working on. Tell me what you think you have to do today. Literally in a list, like a shopping list, and rank the list according to importance. And then I would say to them, because if you give me that list, I will take three tasks away from you. Because on that list, there will be three less important tasks. There'll be three trivial things that I don't care about. And I will take work away from you. So taking work away from people so that they're only focused on the most important thing, that should be like an ongoing process and an ongoing question that you can ask your people every day. But again, I've I worked for 20 years and I can't ever remember an editor coming to me and saying, hey, Jim, can I lighten your workload? <laughs> it's always the opposite. Because the other... The other mistake there I think you asked me for two examples the other mistake is and it's related is that people can work on tasks and projects for years even though they're not very good and they're not working 
and in the news business, readers aren't responding or customers aren't responding or whatever it is. But they think the work must have value, A, because they did it, and B, because you paid them to do it. And that actually is not how work is valued. And you, at a lot of companies, that can just stagnate. People come in, they do the work, and they leave. And no one ever questions, do people want this? Is this useful? Is it helpful? <laughs> is it adding value? So actively noticing when you've got a line of business or an employee working on something that is that no one cares about, and then changing that person's role, moving them to something else. That's a thing that managers often forget to do. And it's easy to forget to do because sometimes that stuff fades into the background. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale... Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com ACAST. 
That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burnout and mental health are things that have been talked about more and more over the last few years. And you touched on yourself getting tired out. I wondered if you'd noticed it as a big problem and if there are anything managers in particular can try and do to help. Yeah, I did notice it actually, and particularly around the pandemic. And we all have a story about this, but the in the news business, the pandemic was like uniquely stressful. Insider went into its own lockdown several days before Boris Johnson called the official one. And that period of just working out of your house for two straight years, we were completely virtual and remote. And communication does become a lot harder. There's you miss the little conversations, and particularly with newer employees. So before the pandemic in the office, a new employee might be anxious about something. What does, does my boss like this? Do they care about this issue? Should I do this? And then the, the more experienced person sitting next to them might be able to say, oh no, don't bother with that, he doesn't. And within 10 seconds, that issue is now gone. But if you're a, a new employee and you're at home, you have, it's very difficult to figure out who to ask that. And we found, a lot of our staff, and I certainly felt it myself, appeared to be having conversations inside their own heads about things that weren't really an issue or weren't really existing. And people were sort of, anxiety was building up around certain issues that it never should have done. Had we all been in the same room talking to each other face to face, we could have casually said, oh, don't worry about that, no one cares. We're not doing that anymore. So I think that's the sort of the function of chat around the water cooler, chat in the kitchen where you get the coffee room, stuff like that. Stripping that out actually makes communicating some of that stuff a lot harder. People, the isolation does keep people inside their heads a bit too much and people stress themselves and you have to overtly work against that and again it's communication becomes a lot harder you think communication is becoming easier because you've got slack you've got email you've got google meetings you've got zoom it feels like you're reaching all these people through multiple different media but in fact you're actually communicating with them less. Unless you're literally in a face-to-face -face video meeting every single day with someone, you're, they're getting a lot less information from you. They're not even... Yeah. At Insider, we have these like big newsrooms, they're big open plan things, the Bloomberg style, where everyone sit the, sits at the same size desk and everyone can see what it, where everyone else is doing. One advantage of that is that you can see what people are excited about. If the people you respect, or your bosses or whatever, or just other good journalists in the room, if you can hear them laughing and getting excited about something, and you can see good work being celebrated and bad work being booed, you can see it, and that you get that those priorities by osmosis. And all of that is completely lost, and it's really difficult to, to tackle that and to communicate around it. The flip side is actually, Insider became actually more efficient when we went remote. And most employees did not go back to the newsroom most of the time. There are advantages to working from home. Anyone with kids loves working from home. Anyone who has to do a lot of writing loves working from home because there's no noise in the in wherever in the office or there would be noise in the office so there are there, there are advantages and efficiencies to it but yeah the psychological effects of it was extremely strange yeah yeah i think many people would agree with that i think we're running out of time but there's i just wanted to touch on sort of the aspect of recruitment which obviously you talk about in the book as well because you're as a manager able to build your own team but you talked a bit about the whole issue of diversity yeah. and that the meritocratic myth versus act 
positive diversity yeah. looking. And you said that you'd personally changed your mind on all of that. And I wondered if you could talk us through that. A few years ago, I think it was about 2017 or 2018, I was looking through basically piles of resumes on my desk for people to hire or the incoming email list from the job ads we had. And it occurred to me that I could actually fill every single seat in the office with someone who was white, went to private school and had graduated from Oxford or Cambridge or City University, the journalism school there. And, and also most of them would be living in the South. We didn't get many Scottish applicants from, with a comprehensive school background. And previously I thought what you should do as a manager is just hire the best people, the best of everyone, and that will give you just organically, naturally a diverse mix of people from different backgrounds. And that's really not how it works in real life. So I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to do something about this. There's got to be other ways. And myself and Emma Smith, the managing editor in London, we contacted every journalism diversity organization in London and basically said, please, we want to advertise our vacancies with you. We want access to your mailing lists. How can we encourage your people to see Insider as a place they want to work? Weirdly, that was very difficult, by the way. That took about six months. A lot of organizations that claim to represent journalists from various diverse backgrounds actually do not have big memberships, shall we say. <laughs> they are talking a good game. They're not actually representing a very large number, number of people. Some of them do. But it became clear that on its own was not going to fix the problem. We did a, we did a few other things. We ended up joining the NCTJ's diversity scheme, which is good. You do get access to more talent that is not white, basically, from that scheme. However, it costs £10,000 to join. And I don't think that journalists of colour realise that there's a £10,000 paywall in front of their resume when they're inside that scheme. And a lot of smaller media organisations just don't have 10 grand to throw around on recruitment every year. So that's an issue. But ultimately, it took a long time, and I'm trying to summarise this very quickly. Ultimately, what we had to do is just aggressively target and poach people specifically. Like, we didn't just sit around waiting for for people to respond to job ads, partly because there's a lot of companies where journalists of colour just don't... uh, There's a lot of media companies where journalists of colour, they don't see themselves there, that it's not on their radar kind of thing, or they think, I don't want to apply there because it looks a bit too white. So you have to go to those people and say, no, please consider these opportunities. And we end, by the time I left, we ended up with a team of people in the managing editor group who, you know, who, whose job was to just to look for people who were not applying for jobs at Insider. Look for people from non-traditional backgrounds, look for people of colour, look for people from the LGBT community, that kind of stuff, and to to target them for recruitment, basically. People who had never applied for jobs at Insider, people who hadn't even thought about it. And we hired a lot of people that way, basically calling people on the phone or emailing them and saying, hey, we have this opportunity, did you know it? Almost all the time people are like, no. Yeah, so that was how we solved it. I'm not going to say we solved it because it's like an ongoing challenge that you have to keep you have to keep doing it every day but it was a new practice that we added that we hadn't before basically thanks for that charlotte great interview as ever i enjoyed hearing a lot more from jim he clearly knows his onions doesn't he giving me a few things to think about how we can improve as we go along what do you think the big take-home was for the sort of someone who's in a in a, a management or sort of leadership position and he wants to do it a bit better? Well, I think he nailed it actually with the title of his book, Say Thank You for Everything, because that just seems like such a simple thing 
to do that makes a massive difference and just any workplace anxiety people might have if they actually feel appreciated then I can make a massive difference whereas I think certainly in lots of offices I'm sure but in newsrooms you might be just doing story after story and it never really feels like the contribution you're making is noted so I think that can make a massive difference but then also the point about making sure that you respond more quickly if something's not working and also help your staff prioritize the sense that if the default position of staff is to just say yes when you're asking for something so asking for an extra story or contact someone else you're very rapidly being overloaded but If you help prioritise that, more open communication about what everyone's doing, I think just those sort of quite simple things can make a really big difference. Clientness, isn't it? I always think that's one of the key things that any journalist should be told. It's that I always find the most successful journalists always incredibly polite. So it's good manners because it's uh, you're always asking people things in journalism, aren't you? And manners cost nothing, don't they? And and maybe that's something we forget as we we go on in the early of the newsroom. (laughs) remembering that politeness goes a long way brilliant but thanks for that charlotte thank you for saying that dom uh, uh, thank you for the efforts you've gone to in in this in this podcast it's a good interview and yes well done <laughs> thank you you've been listening to the future of media explained with me Preston editor-in-chief dominic bonsford uk editor Charlotte Tobit, and engineered by Adrian Bradley. You can find out lots more about all the issues we discuss on the podcast on our website, pressgazette.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.